What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Let's kick this thing off. Caleb Presley is one of the most electric people on the internet. He currently works at Barstool Sports. He runs the at Thinker account on Instagram and previously played football at the University of North Carolina. In this conversation, we discuss college football, pro athletes creating content and building audiences, social media trends, default digital value of assets, volatility as Bitcoin's PR team, and many behind the scenes stories of Caleb's escapades. I really enjoyed this conversation with Caleb and I hope you do as well. Before we get into the episode though, I wanna quickly talk about our sponsors. The first is Athletic Greens, the all-in-one daily drink to support better health and peak performance. Even with a balanced diet, it's difficult to cover all of your nutritional bases. And for a guy like me that eats Domino's and McDonald's every Saturday, I definitely need to make sure that I'm balancing my nutritional bases. That's where Athletic Greens will help. Their daily drink is like nutritional insurance for your body that's delivered straight to your door. They've developed a complex blend of 75 vitamins and minerals and whole food sourced ingredients. They've got a green powder engineered to help fill the nutritional gaps in your diet. This is no joke. I've been drinking it every single day and I love it. You literally open up the thing, you rip it open, you pour it in some water, stir it up, drink it, and now you got all the greens that you need. Everything from adaptogens for recovery, probiotics and digestive enzymes for gut health, and vitamin C and zinc for immune support. It's an easy all-in-one solution to help your body meet its nutritional needs. That's right, a simple powder that makes sure you get all of your greens. I eat Domino's, I eat McDonald's, and I drink Athletic Greens. So whether you're looking to boost your energy levels, support your immune system, or address gut health, now's the perfect time to try Athletic Greens for yourself. If you want to be athletic, drink Athletic Greens. Simply visit athleticgreens.com slash pomp to claim my special offer today and get a free D3 K2 dropper with your first purchase. They're pretty cool. Athleticgreens.com slash pomp. That's more than a year supply of vitamin D as an added value through the free D3 K2 dropper with your first purchase. Athleticgreens.com slash pomp. Go try it out. Our second sponsor is Unstoppable Domains. Coinbase wallets. Previously, if you wanted to send money to a wallet uh, with Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies, you had to use a very long string of random letters and numbers. Your heart is palpating. You literally start sweating. You really don't want to screw it up. You check every single letter and number to make sure you got it right. Gone are those days. Coinbase wallets are now adding support for .crypto and .zill domains through their partnership with Unstoppable Domains. Unstoppable Domains provides an all-in-one solution for blockchain domains. So you can now send money using these new domains instead of the long wallet addresses. You don't have to send money to the random string of letters and numbers. You can simply send it to something like pomp.crypto and you know where it's going. So you can also store your domain in Coinbase's collectible section. Go get your domain today. Go to unstoppabledomains.com in a DAP browser to register and manage your domains. Everyone's talking about DeFi, but don't sleep on the D web. The decentralized internet is on the way. Unstoppable Domains is leading the way. And now Coinbase wallets will support these .crypto and .zill domains. UnstoppableDomains.com. Go check them out. 
Lastly, don't forget that I write a daily letter to over 50,000 investors about business, technology, and finance. I break down complex topics into easy to understand language while sharing my personal opinion on various aspects of each industry. You can subscribe at pompletter.com, pompletter.com. All right, let's get into this episode with Caleb. He doesn't disappoint. I hope you guys enjoy this one. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang. I've got a special treat today. Mr. Caleb Presley is here. Uh, for those that, of you that do not know Caleb, uh, he is a electric content creator is how I would describe him. But, uh, <laughs> thanks so much for, uh, for doing this, man. No problem. I'm excited. I told you I'm a big fan of yours. Huge <laughs> fan. So, so Caleb, Caleb, you grew up in North Carolina or just went to UNC? I grew up there, born and raised Asheville, North Carolina, which is in the mountains in West North Carolina. And uh, yeah, then I went to Carolina for school too. So really the only time I've ever not been in North Carolina is here in New York City. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and so let's talk first about UNC football. Uh, I grew up a Duke fan, so we'll give you a pass. But uh, what was that like playing football uh, at UNC and, and kind of that whole experience? Well, I have to, I'm, I'll give you a pass because <laughs> Because my dad uh, went to Duke, and so we had a little bit of Duke uh, affiliations as I was growing up as well. But um, Was he mad when you decided to go to Carolina? No, he wasn't mad, but I'll tell you this. He put a sticker on his car whenever I went to Carolina to play football, and then uh, the, the day I graduated, he took a sticker off. <laughs> Carolina took a sticker right off. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, yeah, he, he wasn't feeling it. So anyway, that. yeah, it was a great experience, man. I, I was there for – I went in – I went in under Butch Davis, um, and uh, he got fired my freshman year. Before my fresh, three days before the season started. So I got I got there in June or July. I spent like a month or two in the summer conditioning program, meeting everyone, all the coaching staff, whatever. And then three days before the season starts, uh, he gets fired. For you know, there was just some apparently some cheating going on. Turns out he didn't even have anything to do with it, but he got fired. The staff took, you know, the, his staff was there my freshman year, but then after that, they got fired too. So and then I kind of, you know, I don't know how what your listeners are into football or not, but I went in basically Butch Davis is a pro-style offense, which is a different type of quarterback. That's a different type of offense for a quarterback. And then we got a new spread-style offense after that, which uh, wasn't good for me. <laughs> uh, I was not a I'm not a prototypical spread quarterback so I had a great time at Carolina I was a career backup and played in a few games and uh and I wouldn't change it for the world I, I saw somebody tweeting at us uh when I asked for questions about you had a a very long two-yard run they said so I don't know I think it was against Idaho or something which I figured it was somebody that you either knew or a Carolina fan that was trying to bust your balls no, dude, it was actually historically correct. There's in the college football almanac, it's actually the longest two yard run in the history of the game. It All was right, almost, tell us the story. almost three yards. Yeah, no, it was, uh, we were beating, I think, Idaho by, I think it was 70 to 20. 
And then the coach put me in. I think it was time to take the starters out eventually. And, and they, we were running a zone. So like I'll do another inside football thing, but we're running a run play, basically zone read. We have an attached tight end. So what, what you do in a, in a zone read is you read the defensive end. If he crashes on the running back, you pull the ball. Well, if there's an attached tight end, then the tight end will just block that guy that you're supposed to read. And so there really is no ability to read it as a quarterback, and you're supposed to hand it off, let the guy go. So I'm sitting here on the sideline. You know, it's 50 to 20, 60 to 20, 70 to 20. Finally, I'll get in. So I was like, I'm pulling the ball. So I basically made up my own play and almost made it three yards. <laughs> I, I love that. Uh, I joke all the time. Uh, I played football at uh, Bucknell University, and in high school, our team was horrible. Like I think we literally went one in ten uh, for two years straight uh, when I was a freshman and sophomore. And so by the time I uh, got to be a senior, we basically were like, "Look, man, we're either uh, going to have fun out here, or we're going to lose all the time." And our best play my senior year was a fake punt. So we basically would get in fourth and long, and then we would run a fake punt. And the coach would only call it, you know, once a game. And finally, towards the end of the season, my friends and I just started saying, look, man, we're going to run that play all the time. And so we would just call it ourselves on the field. And as you can imagine, I'm sure your coach didn't like the fact that you pulled the ball or that we used to run the fake punt. And, you know, they want to run their system. But, hey, that's what happens, right? Yeah, fake punt's always good. You get to the point where you're running on third down, though, that's a problem. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, all right. And then uh, tell us about this letter that you wrote to the coaches. What, what, what is that? You have to remind me, maybe, dude. We so, have a lot so, of history there. So somebody said that you wrote a letter to the coaches that had, like, some ridiculous all-time quotes in it, but it's no longer available anywhere on the internet. So this is what they're probably talking about. So I used to have – when I was at Carolina, and this is kind of how I got started at Barstool, and, and uh, or at least it was the origins of it, was I had a website called calebpresley.com, and I would just – you know, I didn't have any like aspirations to be in uh, media as a profession, but I actually was inspired by this guy named Mark Titus. Some people might know him. He's still around. But when he was uh, at Ohio State, he was a basketball player. And he kept his own website called Club Trillion. And it was hilarious. Like he was just always, he was a backup to, he's always writing about his interactions with like Greg Oden, who was there at the time. And uh, just, just hilarious website so i was inspired by him so i started my own website where i was doing blogs i was trying to imitate him basically it was a copycat um and i was doing a couple videos and it was all just to make people laugh and for my friends really my family people who were following me back home in Asheville, and then of course there's some carolina fans who are deep enough in like the message boards and stuff where they find out about it and so i wrote a lot of stuff on that site which it hasn't been necessarily deleted i just stopped paying for it so i think that I think that like WordPress deleted it, but it's, I mean, I don't know. I probably could renew the subscription and find out what they're talking about. I wrote a lot of things and just in the interest of, of remembering it fondly and remembering it like I was a good writer. I just don't want to renew it. Cause I don't even want to see it. <laughs> and w were you writing things like uh, covering your day-to-day -day life or were you writing like le open letters to the coaches and things like that while you're playing? Like any, like literally anything like, open letters to the coaches like demanding more playing time I think I wrote one about like how third I think I wrote one about thirst this is about like basically how like horny you guys get during the summer during college like um 
Yeah, I wrote, I wrote a lot of things. I, and I'm not even sure how well they would be remembered. That's what I'm saying. So let's just, I might just let the sleeping dog lie. All right, that's fair. Uh, I, I they would, might be remembered well. I don't know. I would actually be interested to see. I, I would love to see players today using social media or blogs demanding more playing time. Like at the college level, I think things would get out of hand very quickly if, if that became the trend. That's the way it's trending, dude. It's, it's definitely going power to the player. Um, Do you see, is, the pack, you see the Pac-12? I saw the Pac-12. What do you think about that? So for those that don't know, the Pac-12 players, supposedly a bunch of them have come together, and they're basically making demands. Everything from uh, they want safer conditions uh, during coronavirus to they want a revenue split uh, with the conference. They want uh, lifetime health care, kind of all these you know, pretty uh, material demands. What, what's your take on that? I think, I think power to the player, and I think that um, that's the way it's trending. That's the way it's going to be, whether, you know, the NCAA is, is going to be with it or not, or these conferences are going to, of course, they're going to meet it with resistance. And I don't know, you know, I'm not super informed on the exact details of what the Pac-12 guys are asking for, but it is going to be the way of power to the player and not just necessarily on in college. I mean, college is where they're probably the most, um, you know, they're, they have the most opportunity for growth, but even in the like professional ranks, I remember watching, uh, I think it was last year when it's, gosh, it seems like 20 years ago with everything that's going on, but I think it was last year, Antonio Brown uh, was with, was put out that video of John Gruden calling him and he was at his house and it was like, he was releasing footage that no behind the scenes footage that, you know, wasn't in, part of the HBO show or anything. It was just an intimate call that he had with John Gruden. And he put it out for the world to see. And John Gruden, I don't think, knew about it. Or maybe he cleared it with him after. But I remember watching that and being like, one, this is so interesting. It's captivating because you're seeing these people that you really care about operate basically behind closed doors. But what's stopping anyone from doing this, not necessarily in just exposing conversations, but just in like, really opening the door and letting people in. I'm watching, I keep track of it. I'm watching uh, right now, JaVale McGee from the Lakers is, is doing a, a vlog inside the bubble. He's basically just, he's filming himself. I mean, it's, it's pretty uh, crude, not in the sense of uh, like language or anything, but crude in the sense of how it's made. But he's basically following day-to-day life in, with the Lakers. And, you know, he's getting on the bus and you see LeBron James in the back of the bus listening to music. It's like, that's so easy for athletes of any level to capture and release. And people are going to be so interested in that content. And it's something that we've really never seen, which is behind the scenes without these big hulking cameras, which change behaviors. I do content for, you know, for work. And a lot of the stuff we've done in the past has been like, you know, getting reactions out of people or talking to people on the street or, or even like hidden camera stuff. And you always want, I always ask the producer or whoever's shooting it, let's get a smaller camera because these big cameras change your behavior in an instant. You know, we have these huge freaking things that sit on shoulders and we got these, these audio booms and, and all of a sudden people start acting different. But if you can have these little cameras, which now are just the iPhone or whatever, you capture real life. It's like uh, exactly how people are. And for players to have the iPhone and to have the editing ability or to have you know, a blog might even be outdated in terms of writing uh, for players. I don't know. We have to have some good writers, I guess. But have you seen Mateo? So 
Mateus, the I think is how you pronounce his name from uh, the 76ers. He's been doing the same thing and he started on YouTube maybe two, three weeks ago. He's already got almost a million subscribers. Each video that he's released, he's done like six or seven of them now. Uh, he's gotten a, a million views uh, on each one, I think now. No, I haven't seen him. That's exactly what I'm talking about. I don't see what's stopping these guys from because then what happens is, is then all of a sudden you start seeing from their perspective, you start seeing from the NBA players perspective, which we don't necessarily feel bad for NBA players and pro athletes, but okay. Then an NCAA athlete does this, some, a college football player, and you start seeing the day to day in his life. And then all of a sudden um, you start really seeing from his perspective. And then all of a sudden you really relate to him. And then when they start making demands or when they start asking for um, basically just to be treated fairly and be compensated fairly, then you start being like, Hey, this guy's right. I see what he's saying. He's totally right. And right now what the NCAA has done a really effective job doing, whether it's intentional or unintentional is, and I think it's intentional. And it's also these college programs is shushing the players, hushing the players where they're the only ones getting to put their, their viewpoints and their perspective out. And so of course the public is, just now starting to come around to the idea that maybe this is really unfair. And this, the more content these athletes are able to do um, and the more people are able to relate to them, whether it's just social media, even if it's not a vlog, the quicker this is going to change, in my opinion. Yeah. And I think that there, you got kind of two different things here, right? One is uh, the last dance. If you watch that, right. With uh, Michael Jordan, and the Chicago Bulls, like they filmed all of that behind the scenes content and held it for you know 15 20 years and then they all released it at once but it was very cut up it was approved by michael it was kind of espn's version of that history i think what you're talking about is getting access to that information almost in real time and yeah. the pro players are, are interesting i completely agree it's gonna happen at the college level but you can almost go a step further and what stops a player from after a game videoing uh let's say the athletic training room Right. And like, look at how much pain some of these players are in after the game's over. And you could easily see, you know, some guy in a, a football stadium does that two or three games in a row, puts, you know, cuts it together and says, hey, you want to know why we want, you know, lifetime health insurance? Here, here's the, you know, the carnage after the game's over. And look, I don't think that players, you know, necessarily want to go out and, and be like investigative journalists or, or anything like that. But I do think that uh, they've got more power in their hands now. Right. They, they can do certain things that they previously weren't able to do, which if they're smart, they can use to their advantage. That's exactly what I think. That's exactly what I'm saying, too. And trust me, these coaches know and the athletic directors know and the people who are it's in their interest to make sure that it doesn't happen. They know how much power is in the players hands. And it's really kind of, you know, a lot of I know coaches. I, I remember Dabo Sweeney a couple of years ago was like no Twitter during the season. That's not so. Listen, that's not so the players are focused. I mean, he wants them to be focused. The reason there's no Twitter during the season is he doesn't want anything getting out, someone to say something stupid, bulletin board material for another team, or even worse, some type of uh, violation the NCAA is going to get Clemson on. They're looking out for themselves. And trust me, when, even when I was at Carolina, uh, Fedora was the coach during whenever I was doing on my website and my content, was very receptive to me making content. He was very okay with it and encouraged it. Uh, in a lot of ways. But with that being said, there were definitely still conversations that I had with my quarterback coach and uh, and other, you know, it was just well known as like, hey, you, if you're going to be doing this and you're going to be posting, you have a responsibility not just to 
yeah, you can try to make people laugh and try to be, you know, you know, the funny guy on the side, whatever. But also this is very serious and you need to be careful what you're posting. And yeah. um, there's a lot of power there. And I think the players are starting to come around to that. Yeah, and, and the part to me that's so interesting about the Pac-12 thing is there's multiple teams, right? This isn't just a couple of guys who are going, you know, quote-unquote rogue from one team. They've actually gone and they're organizing with people across the conference. And all they've done really is they've just made a demand, right? Which sounds like it's more of like they sent a letter or, or something like that. What you're talking about is um, when you start, when you stop talking to the NCAA, you start talking directly to the people, you could see very quickly this going from, hey, uh, the NCAA is cool with you using your image and likeness, which, you know, when you or I were in college wasn't allowed, to now literally the public pressure being like, why aren't you paying these kids, right? And, and you know, if you go back to, what was it, uh, the Ohio State guys who, like, sold their cleats or something, right? You know what I mean? And, and they were getting in trouble for it. And it was like, look, their argument basically was um, – or, or you know who actually I think had the best argument was um, – Arian Foster, right? I think he went to uh, Tennessee, if I remember correctly. Yep. And when he was in the NFL, he came out and he said, uh, I went into the stadium. I had like, you know, a record day or whatever. Everyone's chanting my name. I went home, opened my refrigerator. I had no food. And uh, the quote he gave was, I called the coach and I said, hey, coach, you better bring me 100 tacos or I'm going to do something crazy, <laughs> right? And, right. And, and, and it's like, look, is he right in that situation? Probably not. But he's like, but the coach brought me the tacos, right? right. And, so, and so you kind of get in this world of like, those are the stories that people previously were only comfortable saying once they were in the NFL, once they had no repercussions. Right. But I think that now with social media and, and content, people are going to start sharing those stories in real time. Right. You don't want to air out your coaches. Like that's, you know, that's a violation. The coach now I do that. So, you know, like when I was at Carolina, it was uh, coach Fedora and those guys. Like I got, I like the coaches. I'm not trying to do anything that's going to affect them negatively. That's their job. They have families there. They have, they put in a lot of time. Most of them really care about the players. So, you know, you don't want to get other people in trouble just because you're trying to, you know, expose uh, a flaw in the system. And that, you know, that goes for more than just college football. But it's kind of a balance of how do you get change without throwing other people under the bus and hurting what they got going on. For sure. Talk to me about uh, Barstool. Obviously, uh, you've gone from college quarterback to Barstool and create some of the most hilarious content I've ever seen. Um, you know, you were talking earlier, kind of like the man on the street or um, going to college campuses, you know, during football season and stuff. Like, where do all these ideas come from? And kind of what's that process look like from going from, you know, I've got an idea to actually getting something uh, approved and, and published? So this is what I think is interesting about Barstool for people who don't know is that Barstool was founded by Dave Portnoy, who is who has now become he's pretty much like a national celebrity. Um, he, I mean, pretty much everyone knows him, whether you whatever you feel about him, he's known. So he started this company and he basically just started it as he wanted it to be uh, for the common man, by the common man about sports, sports talk. And he's grown it and he's grown it. But along the way, as he's hired new talent and I was one of the now when we look at it now I mean I was like the 13th employee so I was er, I was early on I was before we got bought but he still had been growing it a long time before I came into the picture and every time he picks up someone new that he thinks is good for Barstool he is not overlording them basically he's saying hey I think that 
you could make a valuable contribution to Barstool Sports. And what I want from you is I want you to go out and I want you to create content and I want you to publish content. And whether it's writing or it's a blog or now a podcast or TikTok, or I guess we might be moving to Triller, it sounds like, or whatever. Um, you know, I want you to go do your thing. And then I'm also, Dave's running a company, but he's not like, you know, CEO guy all the time. He's, as you can see, he's making content as well. So it's like almost a sense of like, yeah, go do your thing. Like go, go, go for it. And then whatever you come up with and put out, great. He's not checking anyone's work before it goes out. There's no editorial process. I think there might be now for like some of the really new guys because it has gotten so big. But um, there was never any point in my entire career where Dave uh, like was like, approving ideas after I came to him of course you know he, every once in a while he'll have an idea for me or if there's something like it's a really expensive travel I'll run it you know hey Dave is this okay and but with that being said he's never said no in my entire career at Barcelona which is you know five years now he's never said no he's like the best boss and I think it's the only way Barstool works how it does is that it's it's complete creative freedom and it's like everyone's their own boss. And we have their, this little world where uh, you can basically be as successful as you want to be and put out as much content as you want. Or you can, you can kind of hide in the weeds and you'll probably still get paid every two weeks because Dave's just not paying attention. He's focused on making content himself. And so, you know, people are, don't know what to feel about Barstool because, you know, they maybe like – Say they like Dave, but they don't like, you know, someone else. Or they like Big Cat, but they don't like Dave. And they're like, I don't understand. Where is the company line on Barstool? What is the, the main point they're trying to get across? And the, the fact of the matter is there is no editorial point. It's just a bunch of different people who are all doing their own thing with basically no oversight. And it's, that's why it's kind of wild, wild west. There's no oversight. But that's what makes it fun, right? That's what makes it fun. Yeah. What, what do you feel like in terms of um, that process? Like, what has it allowed you to do that maybe you couldn't have done elsewhere? So like one or two, you know, segments or, or pieces of content that you've done where you're like, I know that I could have never done this anywhere else. Only at Barstool could I have done this? I mean, almost exclusively everything I did. <laughs> I almost, figured that's what you were going to say. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, I've, I've done it all. I've done, uh. I mean, we've done things that are definitely not, uh, you know, PG. We've done, you know, I've, we've done like the porn convention and we've done, uh, we've shot out and, and uh, the Bunny Ranch, what was that, for uh, out there in, in Las Vegas where there's prostitution, is legal, stuff like that, which is kind of more like sultry uh, stuff, but also just how we involve with sports. And, and we get in there and we do stuff that's not, I remember I went to Missouri last year and one of the things we did is like I covered like my uh, my hydration tests, my pee tests. And it's so like just showing yourself pee. I wasn't showing like nudity, but just like I videoed myself peeing into a little jar. Recently, I sent my poop off to um, New Mexico and I, we talked about that. So just there's just no everything, everything. The answer is everything. So when you're thinking of this stuff and I watch pretty much everything, uh, first of all, it's hilarious, right? It's entertaining. Uh, and I think part of the point of Barstool is to make people laugh. And you know, Dave and, and many others have said it multiple times, like 
just to give people a break from life, right? And I think that you guys are obviously doing a great job of that. How do you personally come up with these ideas? Like peeing in a cup, sending your poop somewhere, going to the porn convention, you know? I probably should like do more context on peeing in a cup and sending my poop because that just sounds, without context, that sounds wild. Um, but, uh, but uh, so, dude, so it really is like, I kind of think of myself, and I don't know if this is right or wrong, uh, but I kind of think of myself as just like working for myself. I work for Barstool and I work for the bigger company, you know, and I, and it's really out of just loyalty to Dave because he, he really took a chance on, on hiring me at a fresh out of college. And he's, he just been like the best boss and, and really partner. Uh, Cause he's really a creative partner. Cause it's like, he's, he's not bossing me around, which I appreciate. And that, and it's, and he's like, gained a lot of uh, loyalty from me just by the fact that he's kind of like stays out of the way and he's is very supportive, but he's not uh, telling me what to do. And as a creative person and as a, just a creative for my profession, that's, I think it's the only way it would work. And so I'm loyal to him and definitely to the brand because that's, what's given me the opportunities. Um, but I kind of feel like my own boss in the sense of I wake up every day and I make my own schedule for the most part, I do radio every day. Um, but besides that, I, I decide what I'm going to do. I decide what I'm going to work on. I decide where my priorities are. I decide what's you know important for me to post on, how many times I'm going to post. Every, sing every single decision that I make, I make on my own volition. Um, and so that's kind of, uh, it's kind of the feeling I wake up with is, is almost like I'm a, you know, entrepreneur in the sense of growing the, the, uh, my own brand. And, um, so when I'm making these decisions, you just talk about what am I going to, you know, what are you going to work on or what I'm going to do or how do these videos come to light? A lot of them are just like, you know, they, they just fit in with what I'm trying to at the moment, like my almost it sounds corny. And it's not really how I think of it, but like a business initiative, like what am I trying to do right now? And then it's like, okay, what is the content that aligns with that? Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. How has that changed in terms of uh, quarantine? Obviously, people were just sitting at home. Um, how did that affect you as you made some of the content? I went back to North Carolina. Uh, I saw everything was getting bad in New York. I kind of saw the writing on the wall. So there was like this weird um, text that was going around. I think you probably got it like a couple of times. It was like it was about some dude had like an uncle who sat in on a lunch what Cuomo was at and they were talking about shutting down the bridges and tunnels. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> yeah. So I got that text like six times and I was like, all right, well, I'm getting out of here. And so I rented a car for a week in advance. I was like, if this, everything keeps progressing at the rate it's progressing a week from now, I'm going to be wanting to get out of here. And I'm worried all the cars are going to get rented up. So I rented a car for a week in advance. And sure enough, a week later, they didn't shut down the bridges and tunnels, but it was getting, getting worse and so i just took that car and i drove to north carolina and uh then i got to north carolina and all my neighbors saw me and they're like so when my parents get in there like wait don't you live in new york city because this was like the worst thing in the world to have someone from new york city come to your neighborhood but uh so i anyways i was back in north carolina and uh i did what i could i picked up golf which is like now that's pretty much exclusively what i'm doing is golf i, I see the strokes hat on and uh there's a lot of people asking if you're going to join the pga yeah, that's my goal. So what happened to me is I went back home to North Carolina. Obviously, the, one of the only things to do right now is play golf. 
I'm hanging out with some of my boys. We're actually in Chapel Hill. And, uh, and every time my whole life, people ask me if I want to play golf. I always say, I never played before and I don't want to hold you guys up. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't want to, I don't want to go out there and then it's my first time. You guys know how to play. I'm spraying balls everywhere. I don't know the rules. And then all of a sudden your whole golf experience is about helping me learn how to play. So every time I've been asked my whole life, I've been like, thanks, but no thanks. I don't want to ruin your time. So I said this this time, but these are like my best friends. And they're like, dude, come on, like, shut up. Let's, you can drink some beers and we'll come and let's play golf. First time ever playing and I immediately fell in love with it. I was like, dude, this is the best sport ever. This is the best sport of all time. You're outside, you're with your friends. It's not super physically demanding, although I have got hurt multiple times since I started playing. Um, you can take it as seriously as you want to take it. It's just, uh, it's just a beautiful game. It's mental. I mean, I was like, oh, this is my calling in life. And I'm 27, but I just figured out that this is actually what I'm supposed to do with my life is be a golfer. And so on that day, that very day, my first time ever playing, and I wasn't good. I wasn't like, oh, you're a natural, nothing like that. I just fell in love with it. And I said, my calling in life is to be on the golf course every day and to be and the way that you do that is either you know bitcoin goes to 45 trillion i can do whatever i want or you become a professional golfer so i said okay i'm going to become a professional golfer because that is my calling it's a gut feeling i'm 27 i know i have an uphill battle but i'm going to be 10 years from now on the PGA tour. And that's what I, and I made that decision. I put that announcement out. That was probably two months ago. And since then, that's uh, what I've been working on almost exclusively is to go to the PGA tour. So when you're in North Carolina, uh, it's much easier. There's golf courses everywhere and uh, you can just get in your car drive there in New York city. There's not exactly a lot of golf courses everywhere. So how do you continue that journey to the PGA tour in New York city? Well, dude, I kept getting hurt at the beginning. So, how do you get hurt playing? You got to explain for those that don't know. How, how do you get hurt playing? I don't know. I mean, that's what I said too. I was when you think about golf, especially coming from like football background, you think about it's just like a leisurely, easy game that old men play. So I it, trust me, I was more surprised than anybody. But uh, I hadn't been doing anything. I was just in, I was in in content creator shape. I wasn't playing sports. I wasn't doing anything. So you go out there, it's a pretty athletic movement. If you want to want to do it right, or I, you know, I wasn't even doing it right. I was trying to, but a swing of a golf club is a lot of like, uh, you know, stability in your core, a lot of hips. And if you don't have those muscles ready, um, you, you'll find out you'll get pretty sore and you might even get hurt. But here's the real issue. Once I decided to go pro and people listening to this are like, is he serious? Does he really think he can go pro? He can't go pro. The answer is, yeah, I'm, I am being serious. So whenever I – and now we can talk more about why I'm serious if you want. But um, when I first started, I was like, okay, so I know what this is going to take. This is going to take work. It doesn't just happen. So I immediately, after starting playing one day, I think I started on like a Saturday. And on Monday, I was like, okay, let's start the golf career. And so I think I was putting in like six to eight hours of golf a day. Um, and that and so basically i went from zero to 100 and so that's how i got hurt it wasn't necessarily just like 
18 holes with my buddies. Like I was like playing way too much. My body was not even close to being ready. And I just hit the accelerator too fast. And so then I really did. I ended up uh, pulling a muscle in my back. I had some really bad tendonitis in my knees. And then to top it all off, dude, one night I was, I came home from one of these golf trips and my mom, cause I was staying at my parents' house for, for coronavirus. She made my, she like changed the sheets while I was out. So, you know, and that's a good mom move and I'm not hating on my mom. I'm very appreciative of my mom. She changed my sheets. They needed to be changed. I appreciate that. I'm a grown man. I can handle my own, but she would do me a, a favor. So I go in to, and she, she put clean sheets down the bed. So I go in to get in bed that night and I took a melatonin right before I went to bed because I was like, you know, I'm trying to get some sleep fast. I get in the bed. She tucked the sheets so tight under the bottom of the bed. Like you ever been to a hotel and the, and the sheets are super tight at the bottom of the bed. Yeah. You're doing like a, you're like fighting with the sheets to get them untucked. It was I don't know if, it, if the blanket was too long, if the sheet was too long. It was almost like she tucked it all the way in from the bottom of the bed and then all the way back, all the way to the top. I couldn't get these things out. So eventually I just went to sleep and my toes were cranked back. Literally like this, they were cranked under the sheets and all night they were cranked, but the melatonin, I just, I just, I passed out. I wake up in the middle of the night in excruciating pain. I got turf toe. <laughs> from my mom cheats and i'm not kidding i got actual turf toe because my my thing was pulled back for so long and so i had to deal with turf toe i mean it's just been a, a myriad of terrible issues so and it when it, you it, reach the pga tour no one's going to be able to say it wasn't a it wasn't a journey you did that you didn't work hard for this no one no one's going to be able to say that it's going to be a modern miracle if i can even i haven't swung a golf club in over a month so what are you going to do in New York? So I'm back here now. Um, and I have a plan to, there's, there's a course, a nine hole course in New Jersey. It's like 25 minutes from me that I've worked it out with them that they're going to let me come out there. And my, my plan is every day I'm going to go out in the morning. I'm going to play my, you know, nine, 18 holes of on course experience. I'll go in. I do a radio show every day at one o'clock, the yak on Sirius XM. Uh, for Barstool um, with a bunch of other great guys. And then after that, there's another place called Golf and Body. And it is a, uh, it's a membership only club in New York City. It's very nice, very like luxurious. They, they reached out to me um, and they, you know, they worked it out for me because I can't pay it. It's a very expensive place. So I can't personally front the bill so they're letting me get in kind of uh you know just out of good faith i guess oh uh, and they're, they're just being nice guys so they're letting me go there for free um but, but when, when you make it to the pga tour they're gonna they be able to shot. say yeah they're gonna say hey we raised that's what, it. that's what they said i said hey man I, so part of my like you know i told you i'll make my own boss whatever it, uh I, you know part of my thing with barstool is that um they I can't advertise. I can't just like advertise for whoever. So I told golf and body. I was like, I can't like advertise for you guys. They're like, no, all we want is whenever you go pro, just say that you came to golf and body. I was like, done. So anyways, in the afternoon, I'll go there and they have everything. They have hitting bays. They have uh, P, like PGA professional instructors. They have 
uh, putting greens. They have a workout facility that hopefully whenever the gyms open back up, I can utilize um, and they have locker rooms and everything. So it's like a full indoor golf place. It's honestly not ideal for someone who's trying to go pro because you really want to be out on the course. And, and, but for New York City, it's the best possible way to continue to be good at golf, especially during the winter, which you know is I'm not going to be outside here. <laughs> so I have so, eight hours a day I could think I could put into golf. All right. So there's a lot of people who watch this and say, uh, Caleb is always joking around, but I think he's serious. And the question then is, why is he serious about this? <laughs> so, dude, it's really like my whole life. I'm still new. I got to figure out a better way to answer this question because I'm getting asked a lot. And I haven't nailed my answer. But really, the truth is that when I play golf that day, and this sounds maybe stupid, but when I play golf that day and I was thinking about it, I had this like emotional, physical, when I had the, it was like this idea. It was like, I should go pro. I should like do this with my life. And then all of a sudden, like all these mechanisms inside me and my brain starts churning and then everything was like, it just made sense. It was like a gut feeling. It was a literal gut feeling. And then you know, I'm thinking about it and all of a sudden the ideas start flowing. You know, if you ever had a, you know, an idea and then all of a sudden you might be driving the car and you have an idea, whether it's about your work or whatever. And then all of a sudden that idea and you're like, oh my God, this is great. And then I could do this and then I could do this. And so I had that with golf. It was like a gut feeling that was like, yo, this is, it makes sense because I love being, obviously I have an athletic background. I love the athletic part of it. I love the competition part of it. I love the camaraderie part of it. I love um, the fact that it's outside. And it's, it's, it's very like you feel like you're kind of in nature, even though you're not, which is perfect for me because I, in theory, like nature. But then when I'm actually like back in North Carolina and we go like hiking and stuff, I'm like, this ain't like there's like too many bugs out here, you know? So golf is like the perfect balance of nature for me. You get off your phone, which is a big thing for me because I'm always on my phone for work. So to be able to get off the phone. So just lifestyle wise, it works for me. And then I was like, I can do this for my work. Like I'm a, I'm a content creator. There's a, there's a lot of golf space to be had for making content. I can do this and still do a good job at my work for Barstool. And this is something where, you know, I can basically continue on the path I'm on, but also start a new journey. And I'm like, yo, I'm 27. This might take me 10, say it takes me 20 years. Maybe tell me it takes 23 years. I think at 50, you can play on a senior tour. Say I don't get on any tours until I'm a senior. You know, I know 50 year olds, like they're relatively still young, especially ones who are like going for their dreams and, and like doing stuff. Like it seems at 27, thinking about being 50 seems so far off. But then I know these 50 year olds who are like, totally young and totally like going for it and in good shape. I'm like, don't I, what do I want to do at 47? Do I still want to be going to college campuses? And like, I mean, these videos are good, but I am going to get aged out of some of it. Isn't it good to be like, uh, uh, on the PGA tour or on the senior tour at 50? Like, isn't that a good lifestyle that I could be working towards while maintaining my goals here? And, and I think also came back to just my innate, um, what I'm good at. And I think that's something I've really been focusing on a lot recently is trying to just focus in on things that I'm really good at. Um, 
and, and put my attention there. Cause I know that from my experience, you know, what I, what I put my attention on, I get better at. And what I focus on is improves, but you know, I've also put my attention and focused on things that I'm not inherently good at, or I'm not naturally uh, great at. And so then I watch those things go from bad to average, and I'm not really seeing a huge value add to my life. Um, one thing that I, I don't think I'm that good at that I do every day is radio. I do it every day, uh, and I wouldn't do it, but I like the guy so much on the show that I do it. It's like Big Cat and Roan and KB, Nick, and Brandon Walker are the guys. And it's just like a good group of guys that I feel like I'm hanging out with my friends. Why do you, why do you feel like you're not good at it? It's just not natural to me. Um, you know, I, I'm not like a natural – I'm not like a take artist, you know, like people who are, are like, they can just give you like a fire take about anything just right off the top of their head. It's just not my, it's not my thing. And it's just not, I know that about myself. Um, I'm more like, I like to like, think of like, I don't want to say bigger ideas, but like, you know, something that might take a little bit more time or like a, a, a video idea that's, that's kind of more like convoluted and has more layers to it. That's, that's what I'm good at. So anyways, long-winded way of saying I do that just because I love the guys and they're part of my and they're just like my friends um but anything else that I do and I'm putting my attention on I'm really trying to make sure that I'm I have a chance of being like the best at it or like one of the best at it and that goes for videos uh that I'm making but also for golf that's my it's my personality it's like it's a kind of like a thinking game it is some athleticism I'm not like the most I play college football but I'm not really like the most athletic guy of all time I'm just I have like enough athleticism the thing that got me far in football was the mental side of the game and I was a hard worker uh, I was really good at the mental side of the game and I was a really hard worker I see those qualities I'm above the threshold for golf so I'm not I'm athletic enough to be an elite player but um, you know I'm not super athletic and then the mental side though I think I could really thrive and I think I could really thrive uh, in the hardworking side, which I know I'm a hard worker. So anyways, I, it aligns for me with what I'm inherently good at. And I want to start doing things that are uh, sustainable, one, but also two, that I can, if I do put my attention and my focus on it, then I can really become really good at it. You know what I'm saying? So before we talk about Bitcoin, where are we starting on the golf side? Like, what are you shooting when you go for 18 holes right now? And then what do we got to get to? So here's my hat right here. 51 strokes. I have to lose 51 strokes to be a scratch player. Uh, that's what the 51 strokes is all about. So my goal uh, is June 18th next year. I want to be scratch. Now I didn't foresee being sidelined with for two months of that 12 months with injuries. Um, so maybe that's going to be hard. It was going to be hard to begin with, but I said, if I can't get the scratch in one year, I mean, this is a far off goal. I'm not an idiot. I know what it, it's to be in the PGA. That's tough. So if I can't show some type of inherent ability to play and hard work that it takes and skill level to get to scratch in a year, which is almost impossible, but you got to remember I'm playing a lot, then maybe this ain't, I ain't cut out for golf as much as I thought I was. So that was my goal. I do need to uh, get back playing. Maybe I'll give myself like a, a breakfast ball on one or two months. But um, 121 is my score. I, my goal is to be at, at a, I want to be a scratch player by June 18th, 2021. 
And then four years after that, I want to be on some type of tour. And then I'm going to give myself uh, five years from there to go be on the PGA tour. That puts me at a PGA player at 37 years old, which is possible. There are thir- plenty of 37 and up players on the PGA tour. So uh, what's the best score you've shot so far? 121. Okay, so 121 is the best. And now we got to go. the only time I've ever kept score. Oh, okay. All right, all right. That's fair. Look, hey. Keep in mind, I'm new, dude. I've only kept score because uh, I'm so bad that when I go out and play, I'm not keeping score because it hurts my morale. So I'm going to give you uh, – you're, you're a better man than me because the only golf where I've ever kept score is uh, – like actually tried to keep scores. We used to play something called speed golf, uh-huh. which everyone plays normal golf. They count the number of strokes. Right? right. And so, you know, par three, whatever. What we did a couple of times in, uh, in high school is we would play speed golf, which is when you tee off uh, from the tee box, the timer starts and you can run all over the course, do whatever. It doesn't matter how many strokes. It's how long does it take from when you tee off to you put the ball in. But the only difference or, or the only caveat to that is when you tee off, you've got to finish a beer before you put the ball. in. So every hole is one beer and it's timed rather than strokes. Yeah. absolute madness by about like, you know, hole six or seven. <laughs> we used to go to like a, you know, one of these like executive par three courses. That's like, you know, nine holes or whatever. Yeah. Complete madness by the time you get about halfway through. Yeah. Beard, uh, the golfing is also like, it's an easy way to get carried away with the drinking. It's very, you find it an easy way we played. So the, the weekend I hurt my back, we were in Pinehurst. Uh, we have some some golf stuff going on. Barstool Classic is at Pinehurst, so I was there. And over the course of the weekend, I get in on Friday, and we played. Uh, I played 36 holes on Friday. I got in. We, my first tee time was at one, right? Played 18 uh, at one, and then we got finished around five or something. And we're walking back off the course, and we're like, "Dude, we really want to play again." Found some random dudes that we had never met. We're like, you guys want to? If I can get us a tee time, because Pinehurst was like helping us out. I was like, you guys would play with us? Played 36 on Friday. The next day, I played 45 on Saturday. And the point here is at the 45 holes, you can imagine the drinking, it gets intense. And then, um, and I think we played whatever the remainder is. Played 97 holes for the whole weekend. And dude, I don't know if my body hurt more or my brain, dude, from, it's an easy way to get carried away. I think that's why a lot of guys like, it. I think 50% of golfers are actually, they just like drinking. For sure. A- yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right. Talk to me about Bitcoin. Uh, and the context here is uh, Marty Bent, which many people in the Bitcoin community will know, uh, used to work at Barstool. And he red-pilled a good number of people at Barstool. Uh, yes. You were one of them. So tell us kind of like, what was the first time you ever heard of Bitcoin? What were those conversations like Marty uh, like as well? Well, first of all, you're the first person to ever say, tell me what you think about Bitcoin. Because I'm used to people saying, Caleb, shut up about Bitcoin. Caleb, shut up. We don't care. We get it. We know. Um, so Marty was hired at Barstool. We called him, Bit- I know him as Bitcoin Marty. You know him as Marcus Dent. I know him as Bitcoin Marty. Bitcoin Marty got hired at Barstool literally as he had like some type of fake job that we were paying him for on paper. His job was the crypto guy because Dave was getting into crypto. And we had another guy named Light Switch Lou, who's also, he's also doesn't work at Barstool anymore, who's the one who knew Marty and brought him in. He was in crypto. And then at, at Barstool, Marty got 
me in the crypto, maybe a few other guys. Um, and I had like the most classic story getting into Bitcoin because Marty comes along. I'm, I meet him like, what's this guy's deal? Oh, this is Bitcoin Marty. Well, what's Bitcoin? He starts doing, telling me about Bitcoin. I'm like, all right, I'll throw a few bucks at it. Cool. Well, then it was what, 2017 in the fall. And so I throw like, whatever, hundred bucks at Bitcoin. All of a sudden, my hundred bucks is, you know, 150 bucks pretty quick, like within a couple, like a week or something. It was like right when it was going off. So I was like, oh, this is like, I got to get on this train now. Like this is, this train is leaving the station and I have to put everything I own into Bitcoin. So this is my personality. You can already tell by going all the way on golf. I take all my money that I have, all of it. Here's all the money I have. And I put it on the, I put it in Bitcoin, every single dollar that I had to my name. That wasn't tied up in something else. Well, then Bitcoin starts kind of slowing down, right? It didn't crash, but it was like slowing down. And I'm not talking about the, over the course of months. I mean, like a couple of days it was slowing down and I wasn't getting that, that, that hit. I was like the hit of adrenaline when it was going up. I was like watching coin uh, market cap.com. And all of a sudden I'm seeing Bitcoin, you know, pl plus 0 0.04 uh, growth. And then I'm seeing all these other coins go 32%. 25%, whatever. So, I, and I asked Marty, I say, Bitcoin Marty, what's the deal with these other coins? Why, why are they going up so much? Are they going to be the big ones? And I don't know at this point, he's given me the speech about what cryptocurrency is, what blockchain, blockchain technology is, what a decentralized currency could mean for humanity. And all at this point I'm thinking about is the green plus however much percent. And he says, Caleb, dude, do not go into these altcoins. He's like, if I can give you any piece of advice, it would be hold your Bitcoin. Do not go into these altcoins. If you want to go into the altcoins, this Monero might have some value because it's, you know, of its secret nature and it's still, you know, whatever. He's like, but I wouldn't even, he's like, if you want to put some money in that, okay, if you want to diversify. But he's like, I'm telling you, man, these altcoins ain't where it's at. So I said, all right, Bitcoin Marty. I said, you've got me far enough. I'll, I'm done taking your advice. You got me into Bitcoin. I've, I've, I've used you and your brain. I'm the, Caleb's brain's taken over now. So I put all the money that was in Bitcoin, move it to the altcoins, right? And I'm not talking about like the altcoins that are, uh, at first it was like Ripple and Ethereum. Well, then those get born, you know? And then you see the ones that are hitting 300%. So before you know it, I get carried away. I got all my money's tied up in these random, and, and I've got the ones that you have to get a, a download like software onto your computer just so you can get onto the, uh, the exchange where they hold this coin. I was in some, oh, it was, it was like QCash, something that was in China, and it was like you had to download their service. thing was called like Liquid. It has since like went out of business, and they like, they sent an email like, if you had money here, sorry, you can no longer access it. Anyways, all you need to know is that I've moved my money over here. Bitcoin tanks, obviously the altcoins tank even worse. I lost everything. I lost every dollar of everything that I had. Boom, poof, out the window, cryptocurrency. And that's how I got into Bitcoin. All right. You're still here, though. So explain right. what happens after you lose everything. I lose everything and I have to laugh at myself because I'm like, I'm an idiot. 
proven time and time again, idiot. Um, never cease to amaze myself, idiot. Then it goes on. Bitcoin kind of uh, goes down. I can't remember what it was at at the time. I want to say it was like 4,000 or something low. And, uh, and so, and, and Bitcoin Marty, you know, he's popular at Barstool whenever uh, Bitcoin is going up. Because I think Dave had bought some, Big Cat bought some. But then Bitcoin crashes. You know, I don't think anyone's going to say it to his face. But, you know, you kind of have a little bit of like, you know, this guy got everyone on Bitcoin. We all lost all our money. Um, and anyway, he ended up leaving. He's and, and but I love Marty. So and, and it was that he wasn't fired because of Bitcoin. I, I can't I think he left on his own volition. I think he took another job. But everyone it was like freaking Bitcoin. Marty lost us all this money. So uh, probably a year later, I was like, or maybe even six months later, I was like, let's go get a beer and let's hang out because I haven't seen you. I miss you. So we're talking. I'm like, so what's going on with Bitcoin, dude? Like, tell me what you think now. And he just really, he talked to me about one, how he had always felt the same thing uh, about it. His thoughts hadn't changed. But then he's really talking to me about some of the deeper issues with Bitcoin and, and some of the, what he believes is are, you know, some of the progress is like society could make from, from adopting Bitcoin and, he gave me some kind of materials I could look at and look more into. And, and for the first time ever, he told me about um, kind of the, the stages of currency that um, the United States has went through uh, over the years and how basically right now we're not backed up by anything. And he really kind of like put some real thoughts in my mind that were outside of the, just the numbers going up. And so, and he kind of gave me some stuff to look at. So I go and I look at it and I'm doing more research. And so I start buying in a little bit, you know, at low. And I'm like, you know, I kind of do still think this is, this, it, it is something. Um, and then I kind of just slowly getting in and kind of watching it go up. And then I'm really thinking more about it. And I don't have, and I know your show, and this is why I'm a fan of your show, is you have experts come on and they have so much extensive knowledge of the, uh, what's, what's happening. That's not me. But I do think I have a little bit of knowledge about, or at least I have a feel, it's more of a feel thing of what's popular and, and trends and things that are, uh, that have legs, you know, with what's coming up, whether it's like we get on, we got on TikTok really early, not really, really early, but like once we saw it, we were on TikTok. Uh, and I say we, me and another guy who, who I do a thinker account with or a, a daily fact account or something like TikTok or even like a new band, you know? You see something like this has legs. Something about it is exciting, and it's and it and it it makes sense on a lot of levels. And I could see this being big. Um, that's kind of how I felt about Bitcoin still, and I still do to this day. And it's the main reason why I, I'm in it is because I look at Bitcoin and I say, no, there's obviously some issues here. Uh, it's obviously very speculative, but when you look at the next generation of kids, I have a ten year old, ten years younger than me, brother, and his world is so different than mine with technology and, and every, you know, all of their relationships. My little brother's really good about it, getting with his friends, being with them on a personal level. But I see his friends too. It's all phone. Everything's phone. And I'm kind of in the generation where, or, or my age group is, it's a lot of phone, but there's also a lot of personal interaction. 10 years younger than me, it's almost 90% phone. It's, they talk to each other on Snapchat in the same room or, Everything that's happening is digital. 10 years younger than that, I mean, they have no chance of human to human interaction how we used to do it. So 
I'm thinking about, all right, these kids, are they going to think about, when they think about money or they think about an asset, like I personally, and I don't know up from down, so don't take my word for it. I'm just telling you what I think. Um, I kind of think of Bitcoin has more legs as an asset than it does as a currency. Just for the reason that when you tell, if I told my little brother about the value of gold, it would be the actual gold. It's like hard to get. It's like, what do you get a gold bar? It doesn't really make sense. It's not like Apple. It's not intuitive. It's like you have to do more explaining to, to explain to someone, this is gold. This is how you get it. This is why it's valuable. Then you would have to do for Bitcoin. And pretty much the, at the end of the day, you're coming back to the same argument of why is why is gold valuable? If I really had to explain to my little brother or someone who's younger than him, I would eventually have to say, well, it's basically just valuable because everyone else says it is, you know, that's the same thing for Bitcoin because there is no inherent value of, you know, holding a bar or it's, I think it just for people who are in the digital age, whereas people now and older than me probably think about, well, it's just digital. So it's really not there. It's, if it's ethereal, it's in the floating in the air, you know, it, it doesn't make sense. It's not, it's, it's not real. It's not grounded in real life. My take is that life grounded in real life is disappearing very quickly. And I think 10 years from now, 15 years from now, the amount of life that's happening as we understand it in actual, you know, it's, it's not that there's a digital world over here on the right and then everything that is in the digital world is just a reflection of what's happening in our actual reality. I think that the reality of what's actually happening, what actually matters is going to be almost entirely in the digital world. For example, right now you look at like a Twitter, Twitter is a social media that you kind of report, you report back on your thoughts about what's happening in our material world or in our reality. But then you look at something like, which I think to, Twitter's on the way out. I do. I hate Twitter. It's getting so terrible. Uh, I get on it because of work. If it wasn't for work, I wouldn't even be on Twitter. But TikTok, you know, I don't know where it's heading. It looks like it's kind of where, uh, with President Trump right now. But TikTok, it's not a reflection of what's going on in the real world. It is its own world. TikTok is its own entire world, similar uh, to YouTube. YouTube is, you go into YouTube and it's like that is its own reality it's not a report back necessarily on what's happening in the real world so i'm just thinking about the future i see it as that we're going to be living inside the youtube and the tiktoks and just the internet sphere that is going to be the basis of our reality and it makes so much more sense intuitively to have something that's a store of value like bitcoin that exists and, is, and, and works with that world opposed to a gold that, you know, I'm not saying gold's not going to be valuable, but, uh, you know, it just doesn't make quite as much, I guess, intuitive sense. Uh, and that's it, kind of my it, thought. It's almost, yeah, it's almost like, um, it's really interesting to hear you say this because you're the first person I've heard articulate it this way, but I think you're dead on in that uh, there's an entire generation of people that their default for value is in the analog world, right? And so kind of this yes. idea, like the digital world is invaluable. It's not real. Like you kids are crazy. But right. when you flip around to the youngest generations, the default is all of the values in the digital world. 
And so I joke all the time, you know, in the You finance. said that so much better than I did. I <laughs> no, no, no. Listen, but I, I think that, you know, the best example is like how many people see when it comes to work, like somebody like wants them to print out a piece of paper, sign it, and then like fax it or copy it back. Right. And I think right. there's a whole generation of people who are like, that's stupid. Just send it to me digitally. Right. And right. like that, like it's such a better process. And so that mentality is going to permeate into even assets and, and things like that. Um, and also what's the difference between buying a stock on an app on your phone versus buying some other asset, right? The experience is very similar and yes, the asset itself is different, but I think that, uh, there's an entire generation of people that are growing up where, uh, maybe your dad or my dad or, or somebody else would call like a broker and be like, you know, Hey, can you buy X, Y, Z, you know, asset for me? And it was a, a relationship where you were talking to a human in order to get access to something. Now I don't need to talk to anybody, right? I literally just go right into the phone and I can do all kinds of things, including send you money. I can buy things. I can do all of this, never leave my couch, not to talk to anybody. And so right. naturally the assets, I think that interface with that are going to be attractive, right? Because it, it's just a different way of growing up uh, from a technology standpoint. A hundred percent. I, I, you said it 10 times better than I said it, but, um, it really is the world is shifting to, you know, where the, where the most value, whether it's, you know, an asset or it's a financial value, but just it's in, I think it's kind of unfortunate because I don't necessarily know that it's right, or I don't know, necessarily know that it's good. But I think that just, if you look at where things are trending, people are putting more and more value of what, you know, what they think about themselves, what self value is starting to align with the analog world. And you know, value of, of what is important in life, you know, is like, you know, what, what should I do today? Well, it's not necessarily, I think it's trending about what I should do today. And what is that's going to the value of my days time, my time, the value of my time is starting to go analog world. So it's like all value is trending in that direction. So it only makes sense that, you know, a store of value would also live in that world. And I, like I said, I don't necessarily think that that's a good thing, but I do think that's where things are trending. Yeah. And I think the part that that's really interesting too, is if you go back, uh, obviously there's now the, uh, the infamous video that Dave made, uh, about Bitcoin in 2017, right? He's so like, good. Still yeah. plays. And, and like the part about it is he's just so honest. He's like, I don't even know what Bitcoins are. Like, I don't, and you know, and you can tell that, uh, whether it's Marty or somebody else has told him enough where he's got kind of pieces of it. Right. right. But, but then he's talking about like, I don't know, somebody's just got a computer and they're just mining the Bitcoins. And then, you know, they just keep on right. and, and right. he's going through this. And what you start to realize is like, ultimately what's driving his interest at that exact moment is like the price is going up. And I think even he says something like, you know, everyone's getting rich, but I'm not going to stand by and let everyone else get rich. Right. But now all of a sudden as price moves, people become interested and then some portion of those people get educated. Right. And like you, you, right pretty much outlined a perfect example where uh, you're staring at a screen and when things are going up 30, 40, 50, you know, 300% or whatever, right. there's just a certain part, portion of the population that looks and it's like, Hey, I'm not going to stand by. But no. then once you actually understand what are these things and, and kind of what is the value, then it's like, Oh, you know what? This makes a lot of sense. Right. right. And then they kind of, then, then they're converted um, in, in terms of that thought process and they stick around. And so I think that like, that just is a natural market cycle and, and, and the price movements are the reason why people come in, right? And, and whether that's good or not, it's just a, a fact of life. 
um, and it ends up being uh, being valuable, I think, in the in the long run. Yeah, the volatility is like the best PR team ever. It really is. I mean, even if it's going down, if it's a huge crash, it's like, you know, it's it's great PR for Bitcoin. Um, I 100% boot you. Let me ask this: um, in terms of uh, when you think of investing, obviously the Bitcoin story you you told us. What do you like? What else do you do? Do you think about stocks or cash or real estate? Like, how, how do you think about investing in general? And and really from the perspective of I'm only a couple of years older than you, I think a lot of people would look at um, kind of these content creators, whether they work at Barstool or elsewhere. And they kind of just write everyone off like, oh, these millennial kids, they don't know what they're doing. You know, of course, they're just buying Bitcoin and Tesla. Right. It is kind of like the, the joke right. in, in the circles right. of older folks. How do you think about investing and for saving and, and kind of like, what do you do? Um, yeah. So I can tell you I can't tell you what's the best thing to do, but I can tell you what I do. Because um, I don't know what's probably the smartest thing to do. What I what I do is, you know, I I'm involved in my work uh 401k i don't want to be it's the one thing i make i like make myself do and i i do an ira too so it's like i don't want to be i actually didn't do it for a couple of years even though it was available to me uh which is probably dumb but because i just feel like I, I hate i hate giving that up uh that money and then that investment that seems so like with the world we're living in and how fast things are going it seems like i'm like there's no chance that this is going to be worth it but I do it as like, that's my safe play. That's like my, all right, you're doing this because you, you're doing something in life that's safe. Um, so I do do that. Uh, I do hold Bitcoin. And, uh, and then uh, I am, the next thing I want to do is I do want to uh, buy something, you know, whether it's land or, uh, uh, you know, a house. And not, not a house to, to live in, but... Um, you know, whether it's, I know some, I have some friends who are like starting getting into like owning properties, renting out properties. It's something I'm interested in. I'm reading about right now. I don't know enough about it to, to guarantee. I'm just looking at my books down here, but um, I'm reading about right now, trying to learn more about it. But the number one thing that I invest in and uh, is, is literally uh, I put back into myself and just, just in terms of, uh, you know, what foods I'm eating, um, you know, what I'm willing to pay for, for, you know, physical training, or if it's, you know, mental or a class or um, that's where, and I'm not saying like, that's how I'm thinking about it. If you really look on paper, where does my money go? It really does go towards things that you could consider an investment, quote unquote, just back into myself, um, hoping that, you know, that I'm going to become a better person and I'm going to become uh, a little bit more equipped to deal with the circumstances of where you really make money, which is, um, you know, in everyday decisions. And, you know, for me in my profession, like creatively, like you can't conjure up a creative idea. It's, it's not how it works. So you really just have to, what I've learned is you really just have to put yourself in the best position. And if it does happen that you're, you did your part, you can only do so much. You can't, force a creative idea a good one you, uh you really just and for me that just means you know it's it's eating healthy it's getting good sleep it's exercising it's just doing the stuff everyone knows meditating um it's just it's stuff that everyone knows but no one wants to do um and and that stuff does cost money if you want to do it right so for sure uh, 
So that's, that's honestly, if you just look at like where I'm investing, that's where uh, my, my actual, the most money goes is, is that kind of stuff. And then, uh, you know, I do like, I got in on Robinhood when the stock market crashed for coronavirus. I'm, I'm pretty much out uh, because um, I don't like, it makes me nervous. Like what's going on in stock. Once it started, I, I made a ton of money because I just, because of my timing, not because I'm smart, but obviously it crashed. I went in, I made a lot of money because it's rebounded so quickly. I got out pretty much uh, whenever it stopped making sense why things were going up. I didn't like that. Obviously, Dave's still crushing, um, or he says he is. I don't know. Um, and then, but I'm out of that. I still have, and then of course, you know, I'm I like Pin, the company that owns us. Like I, um, I'm in Pin. So that that type of thing. But really, um, the most of my investment is is in trying to because I think I'm going to personally make more money wise. I'm going to make more money from like doing a really good job at Barstool then I'm probably going to make from hitting some stock or something like that. If I can really do, I mean, people saw the caller daddy saga. If people remember that and they were like astounded with what these girls are making, you know, I'm not making that type of money, but uh, it's possible. And, and Dave's the type of guy who would be more than happy to pay me a million. Yeah, like these guys would be more than happy to pay you whatever you're worth. It's not like they're trying to rip you off or, so if I can make myself valuable and I can do a really good job for them, then I'll get paid. And I'm going to make more from that than I'm ever going to make from Tesla. I would say Tesla, but Tesla's going up pretty good. <laughs> I love it. No, and, and it makes sense, right? It, it's if you can increase your earning power, uh, that is probably the number one lever you can pull. Right. And, and so it's actually uh, incredibly intelligent in, in terms of kind of what you do for a living. And if you can improve that, um, I, I think it ends up being a, a very smart uh, investment. Uh, before I wrap up, I ask everyone the same two questions. Uh, the first is, what's the most important book you've ever read? Whoa. Um, I would say the, mo the, mo the one that had the biggest impact on me probably was um, the book about Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson because – because it's a great book and because Steve Jobs was so fascinating and, uh, and, and just how he lived his life. And it was just that part of it. And also hit me at a time in my life where I was, you know, I was in college and I was making, it was towards the end of my college run and I'm making a lot of decisions. And you're kind of, I was kind of in that point of my life where, or it's one of the many points of your life, I guess, where you're kind of, you're very open and receptive to, um, some like a, a book or where a book can really can change your life. It's like when you're in like middle school, a song can really change your life. You know, you really start living by that Justin Timberlake song or whatever you, you know, that's, that becomes your mantra. Well, then when you're in college, a book can really change your life. So I would say I've read a lot of, you know, books that I love, but I would say that that one really changed my perspective in a lot of ways about um, how I was approaching life just because probably what, at what point I read it. Love that answer. Um, I, one more question then you get to ask me when to finish up, but uh, this one's more fun. Aliens believer or non-believer? Well, I don't think you have a choice anymore. You might want to change that question. <laughs> Why? I, I mean, they're, they're proven real. It's like, uh, <laughs> they're basically they might, here, right? They basically showed up already. They've been here. Yeah. It's like old news. It's like, no one even cares. It's like, 
That that's hilarious. Uh, yeah, I'm definitely in on aliens. I've been in. First of all, I've been in on aliens before. Um, before it, it was popular, but now if you're not in on aliens, you're kind of like, you know, I, I, my parents are like, uh, just to use them as an example, I don't think they were in on aliens at all. But now I think that they're in on aliens because I think you have, to, it's like, no, we, we've discovered spaceships and also here's a video of them. It's like, it, it, it's almost like the people who were into aliens before they were the conspiracy theorists, but now if you're not into aliens, you're a conspiracy theorist, right? It's, it's like switched. It's, it's very tough. It's like, uh, yeah. One of the things I've kind of always tell, uh, I think about too, is like people who like are like, don't believe in evolution, right? It's like, for me, that's, it's pretty proven. It's like, I think I read a, something. It's like evolution is just as proven as that H2O is water. You know, if you, it's like, are you going to believe you, you if you're going to believe H2O is water, then it's like just as proven that evolution happened, but there are still, and I'm from the South and I guess you are too, you know, there, it's still not super popular. It wasn't even taught to me in school growing up. The first Same. time I even heard about evolution was in college, right? I'm, I was studying abroad in Edinburgh, Scotland. And they, and that's like where Charles Darwin's from and all. And, uh, and I was like, Oh, like I never heard about this evolution. I learned it when I was 21 years old. So anyways, uh, the aliens are kind of the same deal it's turning out to be. It's like, no, they're here. They've been here. They might be among us now, but we don't really, you know, we don't talk about it because it's, it's scary. Here's this video. No, no problem. <laughs> yeah, right. So I would say yes, of course, the aliens. What, uh, what one question you got for me to finish up? Okay. Okay. Well, first of all, if we're going to flip the tables, I'll say that I'm a big fan of yours. I told, and that's how I ended up doing this. It's not because I think you were so interested in my Bitcoin takes, but I actually reached out to you and said, Hey man, I'm a big fan because I just, I hate Twitter. I told you that. And, uh, it just, because it's, it's just not becoming enjoyable now. It's like, it's, I don't even ex need to explain it. People who are on Twitter know what it's like, but there are a few people, a few people who I enjoy their tweets. I really get enjoyment uh, and they're from different worlds or different things. Dave, my boss is one of them. I always will look and see what he's tweeting about. He's always cracks me up. Uh, and then you're another one just because, you know, for me, the Bitcoin world, I know you live in it. It's so far removed from me. Um, and so I like to see what you got going on. What I love whenever you do the, uh, the, the, un the bull run tweet, <laughs> the bull run tweet, my favorite tweet on it on the internet. So, um, yeah, so I'm a huge fan of yours. So I'll, I'll butter you up with that. And I'll ask you this. Um, what do you think is the biggest obstacle in the way of Bitcoin uh, becoming something that is more uh, for the adoption of Bitcoin? Just time. I think it's one of these things where, uh, in my mind, it's inevitable, right? It's for a lot of the reasons you described earlier. Uh, and, and I think ultimately there's like this global game theory going on where governments are just going to print so much money and there's going to be so many manipulated economies and currencies that eventually people are just going to start opting into something that can't be manipulated. Uh, I don't know how long that takes. It's not going to happen tomorrow, but you know, could be 10 years away, 20 years away, whatever it is. Uh, but, but I think that we've got to remember kind of the rise of currencies or assets in general take a long time, right? And Bitcoin's got not only the time obstacle, but it also needs time for people to build the infrastructure and, and kind of all the things necessary to make it easier, right? So 
Um, you can't send Bitcoin back and forth between these, you know, random string of letters and numbers and people's hearts are like jumping out of their skin because they're scared they're going to send it to the wrong person, right? You just got to like, all this stuff's got to improve. And so it just takes time, um, which for humans, I think we hate that answer because it's like, we want to know like, what could we do? Uh, but ultimately it's just like, we just got to keep doing what we're doing and, and be patient. Um, and, you know, look, Bitcoin went from, you know, a third of a cent to say like $11,000 right now. Like that's insane over, you know, 10, 11 years. Um, but I think that that's just getting started, right? And it's kind of like, if you went and you looked at the internet in the early nineties, you were like, wow, you know, I could send a message to somebody. And now you look and like you and I live, you know, 90% of our life on our phones, on the internet, you know, talking to people and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Like right. I think Bitcoin's very similar. You don't think that, uh, maybe my biggest worry is, is I know the government can control it, um, but, you know, I think governments could come together and really hurt the value, don't you think? I think that uh, there's probably less likelihood that they'll coordinate, but I definitely think that there will be unilateral actions. So, like, the United States could ban ownership or another country could ban ownership or something like that. Right. Um, they did it to gold before, right? So, so it's definitely an, an option. Uh, the only difference here, I think, is if a country, especially like a global superpower, did that. I actually so like use the example: of the United States bans ownership. I think that Russia and China and these other people who don't necessarily like the U.S. dollar system would immediately get together and be like, "Hey, let's adopt the thing that the U.S. isn't going to use, and then we can basically like break the world off onto this new system, um, and the U.S. will be, you know, at a disadvantage." So right. I do think that there's like some game theory that plays out of just like. The first countries to adopt it end up having an advantage, and then the first companies to like ban it end up right. being at a complete disadvantage. And so, uh, what everyone seems to be doing is like um, nobody wants to take like be the first to move, right? So it's kind of like everyone's like standing in like the OK Corral at high noon. You know, guns are at their hip; they haven't drawn them yet. But like the second one person starts shooting, everyone's going to start shooting. And so it's like this weird thing where we're just kind of like waiting to see who's the first to make a move, right? Can I ask you one more? I know I only gave one question, but I have one more question for you. Because I asked right. this to Bitcoin Marty, and I wasn't happy with his answer. All right. Not that he answered it, but I was like, I, it, it, he didn't convince me, right? Okay. This is my other, so from my perspective, my idiot perspective of Bitcoin, my two uh, worries about it are, one, I worry about, you know, I don't think that the banks and government is, they're cool with it now, where it's at now. But I, if it gets big, I don't think they're going to be cool with it. And then, my other worry is this, and let's see if I can do a better job of explaining this thought. So if Bitcoin comes out and it's completely, it's kind of uh, capitalistic, right? It's, 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 and, it, and a lot of people like Marty think that uh, Bitcoin as our financial system could solve a lot of problems, right? So if it comes out and it's kind of like the government doesn't interfere with it, it's, my worry is this if that type of society exists no matter what it's if it's financial or if it's back in the old days and it's and it's men trying to compete for the women right what ends up happening is there's the top dog say it's for the women back in the travel days there's the alpha and then that alpha doesn't get uh one girl he doesn't get the most attractive girl he doesn't get the most attractive girl and her, uh, her sister or whatever. He gets every single girl 
That's how it used to work. The top dog in the, in the society gets every woman. This is way, way back, you know? In Bitcoin, see if I can bring this full circle here. Um, these are a lot of my thoughts too, or like they, they sound idiotic, but they have good points. In Bitcoin, wouldn't the top dog, if it's unregulated, end up with not a lot of Bitcoin, with not uh, you know a majority of Bitcoin? Wouldn't they end up, the top most richest guys in the world, end up with virtually all the Bitcoin? Wouldn't it eventually flow all the way back? It would... Even people like people like me who have a little bit wouldn't mind eventually flow into them, and then they basically, when it's all said and done, you have the the one percent of the one percent of the one percent has ninety nine percent of all the Bitcoin. Well, so look at the fiat legacy system. The top, you know, one percent or half a percent, they control like 90 percent of the world's wealth. So what you just described essentially happened, you know, in right. the legacy finance. Right, because because this is uh, and. To my point, this, this, that's what happens. And in, in, uh, it's just natural for the top people to get richer. The rich get richer. For sure. Uh, I think in the Bitcoin world, uh, is it possible? Sure. Uh, but the one thing that Bitcoin has that the fiat currencies don't have is you're financially incentivized to spend your dollars, right? Because they become less valuable over time because they're being devalued through inflation. With this, you know that if you hold on to the Bitcoin, because it's only 21 million, uh, it's deflationary, meaning that it'll get more valuable over time, right? Because as long as demand increases, fixed supply uh, will increase in price. And so what ends up happening is now you're incentivized not to spend or not to be a consumer and to be a saver. And so there's this weird dynamic where in the legacy world, investors are rewarded and savers are punished. Now, the saver actually can win in, in a Bitcoin denominated world. And so I think that's one of the key differences that doesn't necessarily mean that there's not going to be a disparity between, you know, some people with lots and lots of Bitcoin and some people with not a lot of Bitcoin. Right. But, but I think that that just mirrors, you know, the system that we already have. Right. Interesting. Okay. All Fair. right. Dude, I appreciate you letting me get two questions off. Of course. Where, uh, where for like the three people who are watching this, who don't know who you are, where, uh, where can they find you on the internet? I'm sure there's more than that. Um, but, uh, Kayla Presley on, on all, uh, social media is, is just my name, but, um, you know, and I'm doing stuff for Barstool and, um, I'm around, I'm around hopefully in 10 years from now you log on. So whatever kind of virtual reality is going on and I'll be, you can watch me on the PGA tour, hopefully. <laughs> well, we're cheering for you, man. We'll have to do this again in the future. Absolutely. I really appreciate it, man. Keep doing it. Keep up the hard work, keep hodling. Um, and, and just remind people whenever Bitcoin starts to go up, please remind them what to do in a bull market.